Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes Live, where we are now in person, at least for ourselves, if not for you. Um, hi, Yoram. Hi. <laughs> You're in the same room as me. It's super exciting. Yes, for the second time in a row, I think, even though we've not been in the same place in, in the meantime, we've yes. sort of both been traveling to different places and then meeting again here, which mm. is also kind of nice. Yeah, you. we both actually went to France for a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. I immediately realized that I speak no French, which is disappointing. <laughs> I sort of, um, every time I come across a new language, I feel very disappointed at myself that I don't understand it. I just, I feel like I should get it by now. Like, I mean, I know my German <laughs> is still not great, but at least I can understand some German. And then I go to France and I'm like, why has this not automatically loaded? Like, why has there not been some sort of process where yeah. my brain absorbed this? And especially like um, our friends have kids there. And of course the kids, like they speak only French. And I'm just like, this is so frustrating because I want to, like, communicate. Yeah. <laughs> you can't understand them. You can't tell them something. You can't, mm. even if it's simple conversations, but they're still fun conversations with kids. But, yeah. Even, I mean, so, like, the, the accents in French, I feel really, really, mm -hmm. find really hard. So, it's even just basic colors. I have to think about how it would be said because even if i can sometimes i can see what the word is like you know i know that green is vert or something mm -hmm. but i'm like is that how you say it is it like vert or vert or like what's the <laughs> first one of, of those was more australian than the other you don't Oi, pronounce the t first it's like just like it's vert. vert mate <laughs> yeah exactly like you're rolling your v's and your r's and you're dropping letters all over the mm -hmm. place like and i just you know that thing where you have the ordinary superpower? I just would like to be to have the the languages loaded into my brain already. It yeah, just that would, would be, be so useful. I mean, I, nice. I learned French in school and I think I can communicate okay in French. It was definitely better when I was speaking it more. But I arrived in France and we're meeting family there. And I said like, oh yeah, I'm struggling a little bit with, uh, with the language because I haven't used it in a while. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. You have a strong German accent, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Literally one of the first sentences. I'm like, okay, <laughs> put me back in my place. See, I should learn I how to say vert from you because you're also saying exactly. like a German. Exactly. Don't, don't learn French from me. Otherwise people will think you're a weird Australian German speaker <laughs> yeah we i mean we the two of us have this plan this summer to sort of go in a big house with lots of our friends who we did sort of the phd times with yeah um and they all have kids now and all these kids are speaking different languages so there's like some common ground on english french and german but not everybody speaks all three like from the kids point of view and there's also some portuguese that's going to come in yeah. um yeah. yeah like some kids only speak french others speak french and german i can sort of wing that one there's some hebrew like there's like a lot of mixes happening <laughs> <laughs> it will be fun. I, I'm I'm really curious how all the kids will manage. I think to... they'll manage fine with each other. I think like it's gonna like I'm gonna not manage. Like yeah. I mean, kids just they're amazing and they can do this. But yeah, we're gonna be the 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 problem <laughs> <laughs> when they come to us and they want something. They want to tell us something. Yeah, especially I think for me the the Hebrew kids or Portuguese or probably also the Portuguese is where I would struggle the most. Portuguese is gonna be impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't know. I have, like, I think, I have this unhealthy desire that I want kids to love me. I feel like that's how <laughs> how I've decided to judge myself. No, with. As, as a parent, <laughs> I gave like... up on this very quickly. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but as an auntie, <laughs> I could just sort of like have them love me briefly and then give them back when they stop loving me. Um, no, I'm I'm aiming for acceptance, for tolerance. <laughs> one one of as our one of our friends has a twelve year old, and I like they came into to town in London and I was really nervous before meeting the 12 year old because you know seven years ago when the 12 year old knew me she thought I was amazing like as a five-year-old she's like she she was like this is a good person and I was like oh my goodness she's 12 now she's not 
I'm definitely not cool to a 12 year old. Like I'm definitely mm-hmm. like, I'm clearly not a cool person, but at five, she didn't know that. Like that. Hadn't, <laughs> and I was just like, I was very anxious, but then I'm still cool. Like it's the verdict cool. is in and like now I'm still, but she's not a teenager yet, but I'm still. Yeah. That's what that ask, like, if it's the pre, pre, uh, pre-puberty, um, there's still a risk that it will change when the hormone levels change. Yeah. It's hard to tell. <laughs> you lose all coolness. But I'm, I'm holding out hopes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I've been up to apart from traveling is Eurovision. Um, I actually, like, I couldn't watch it on, I think, Saturday or Sunday when it aired. I think Saturday, I don't know, when the final aired. I couldn't watch it then because we were with family and I didn't want to be rude. I didn't want to watch a four-hour program while everybody <laughs> was having dinner. Um, so I literally took myself off social media and news for four days until I was back home so I could really uh, like rewatch the whole thing wow. um, as a recording without knowing who won um, my my wife she she got spoiled by Instagram um, so she was then the one like turning it on because we, we we wondered like how should we do it how can we turn like select a program without some big banner telling us who won uh, okay. when so we're just like, searching blindfolded for... in the room while she worked everything out for you yeah um, and then yeah we watched it so it was it was fun I don't know why I like Eurovision so much and I just want to like without going to like too much detail about like which songs I liked or not I just the one song that I want to recommend to everyone is from Belgium it's <laughs> Jeremy Maquis Miss You is the song and to me this sounds like a um, early 2000s pop song it's something that the Backstreet Boys could have done and I really loved it unfortunately like, I think it was somewhere like in the middle like they didn't get a lot of points um, neither from the jury nor from from the televoting um, but this is my recommendation to everyone if you like sort of retro pop music this is a really really good song and I actually started putting together like a little playlist of Eurovision songs um that i called like eurovision songs that were robbed (laughs) they didn't make the number one but they're actually very good in my opinion okay i mean the title is not doing much for me but okay let's yeah no but it has it has like all of the signature things that you want from such a pop song from like the beat to the melodies that they're singing and it's just like a really fun song um shall we talk about some science i don't think it was quicker it's the paper of the week yeah, so this week I chose the paper, which is based on a little bit one of my favorite topics, which is how genes are expressed mm-hmm. and, you know, how we go from something in this DNA through RNA to proteins and how that is like regulated at all these different levels and somehow just works. And I mean, I know it doesn't work perfectly. There's a lot of things that don't work. Um, but in the end, it, I mean, it works as far as like the organism stays alive and does the thing it needs to do. And I'm always, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of miraculous to me that this is something that can be done and there's just like so many different levels of control and i don't know i love this topic yeah i also what i really like um what we will go into later is like going from the abstract thing where you see a graph where it says like an arrow from dna the arrow shows to this now there's rna Mm -hmm. and then you have another arrow that says now there's protein yeah and showing that there is individual players involved for example the ribosomes that you can pinpoint that you can follow that you can understand and that sort of have not a mind of their own but they have like so much chaos happening yeah individual events happening to them that then Mm. have an influence on the outcome and it's not just like a straightforward um process where you say okay now they they start then it takes i don't know five minutes and then they're done there's so much more like 
chance involved and stuff happening to them and i think the paper of today is a nice story like looking into the this kind of biochemical reactions yeah there's this one there's one of these ideas that sometimes the more you see the complexity of something the more wondrous it is because mm -hmm. i mean you know the fact that you know a string of letters dna can make another kind of similar string of letters rna can then make something that's I mean, pretty much egg whites. Like the fact that this can happen is already incredible. But when you see all the different things that are like bumping into each other and there's random soup inside the cell and you're still getting yeah. life, yeah. it's just, I, I don't know. I think it's extraordinary. Yeah. Anyway, this paper is from Nature Plants. It came out, I think this month or maybe at the end of last month. It's by Wu and colleagues and it's entitled Noise Reduction by Upstream Open Reading Frames which we'll come into a little bit later. Mm -hmm. yeah, there are a couple of words where I had, um, especially with like the noise reduction, to me that's that's like coming from a completely different area most of the time. I was like, noise? What, what are they talking about? And I think to understand what, what the noise is that they're talking about, we have to briefly talk about, yeah, the steps in gene expression, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so from the DNA you have enzymes that are transcribing the DNA into mRNA. So they're going along the DNA and then there are specific signals on there, on, on the DNA or on sometimes proteins bound to the DNA, like transcription factors and uh, other things um, that sort of trigger them to start transcribing and then you get an mRNA. But this also is a process that happens sort of stochastically. So by chance, randomly, if... The, if the conditions are right, you then get the transcription and you can increase the chances by having stuff like transcription factors present or decrease it. Um, but in the end, it's still sort of... So you keep on saying transcription factors. These are just like sort of guys who like are helping make transcription, yeah. making there be more mRNA, mRNA or less. Um, yeah. And then there's also like there's a gene in the DNA, but then before the gene, there's a whole lot of information, like there's a stretch of DNA that basically contains information about how much of that gene to make effectively. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes like, you know, when, in what situation to make it. Um, and that can then like that DNA stays the same, but it can sort of have other things that come in and jump on at these transcription yeah. factors that help it go on and off. And, you know, it's a bit chaotic actually. Yeah. And it's just this chaos. Yeah, but in the end, um, you get some amount of mRNA from it um, that has that correlates with like regulatory structures around on the DNA, and then on on the mRNA, you have the next bit happening. That's the translation, where the smaller part of a ribosome that's considering of a large chunk and a small chunk runs along the mRNA, and then um, finds a starting signal. That's um, that has like three specific letters A U G on on the genetic code, and when it finds that, it stops for a second, and like the whole big ribosome structure is assembled, like the Avengers assembles on on the mRNA, um, and then it starts making a protein there. It then okay. reads the gene, and it it makes a protein there. So the the ribosome is basically this factory that like this movable factory yeah. that like is reading what's on the mRNA and then churning out these these proteins basically yeah. and yeah. So basically, this this is happening. It's not like completely randomly, but there's a lot of things, there's a lot of chaos at all these stages and lots of different things involved. And although there's some sort of signals that exist on the DNA and then also on the RNA to say, you know, how much of um, 
first the RNA and then the protein to make and also sort of some conditional stuff of like how long this RNA will last for and all these kind of mm-hmm. information. This information is there in the genes. It's like in, in the DNA, it's encoded sort of. But at the same time, there's so much chaos in the cell that you don't always get exactly a smooth system where you're always getting like yeah. one protein per second. It's, it's happening in bursts and jolts and stuff depending yeah. on who bumps into who in this soup. Yeah, yeah. The the way I imagine it is, on average, on the longest time scale, you have fairly predictable outcomes. You can say like this will now make a lot of mRNA over a certain time period. Um, but then, if you look at this much smaller section, then you then you start getting like these bumps, like suddenly a burst of mRNA, then suddenly a lot of it is degraded and and taken away, and then more is made. And um, so when you zoom in, you get all of this noise. Essentially, you get all of this like suddenly there's a lot of it suddenly there's not enough of it and um only on average you get sort of the macroscopic outcome that is necessary for cell life and i mean that can that can be fine i mean that's basically works generally okay um to have some peaks and troughs as well as as long as everything sort of is there enough around at the end can be fine and in some cases it's actually helpful to have these surges so with things like embryo development like it it can Mm -hmm. be useful to have some points where like things kind of surge um but in other cases it's not in other cases you do want to have quite a lot of control of how much of a protein is made um because for example in in this case here that protein might be only needed at a certain time or it might actually Mm -hmm. be linked to a certain sort of time period so you want to make sure that it turns on and off fairly precisely um to make sure it's only around Mm -hmm. in a certain time basically so with all of the noise there is actually one clever way that i think was first shown in non-plant organisms specifically like yeast and some animal cells where instead of just having your your gene gene information in an open reading frame is what they call it so that's a to me, sort of the information with a start point, then the information bit and an end point that's, that makes an open reading frame where then that is then turned into protein. So instead of only having one of those on a stretch of mRNA that a ribosome reads and turns into a protein, there's actually another open reading frame stuck in, in front of the original gene that you want to express and that can be a different gene a shorter peptide sequence just something there that sort of keeps the ribosomes occupied for a little bit and then that slows down their action on the main open reading frame and that's actually a really clever way of introducing another way of control in this translation phase where the protein is made because suddenly the the ribosomes sort of spread out their work. Mm. This is how I imagine it. I mean, they basically almost always, not almost, but they, they, they very often like slow things down. So they kind of like just, yeah, yeah like a break. Although there are some examples um, where they can actually help increase yeah. the, the translation and the, the sort of the main off, the, the one that's afterwards. But um, there's a fact, and this is on Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt, that... Um, about 50% of the human genes have these U-offs, um, which might be helping to regulate mm-hmm. expression as one possibility, um, or at least like reducing protein expression. So again, the main the main sort of finding is that there's a reduction in what comes out because of the slowing down action. Yeah. And so in the research that we're talking about today, they wanted to see whether this is um, also observable in plants. And what biological function it has there or it could have there. And so they uh, took Arabidopsis cells 
and um, they used isolated uh, cells and culture uh, that they could then do experiments on and then they created a bunch of constructs so a bunch of stretches of dna that can then be turned into mrna uh, with different gene combinations and what they found is that the main mechanism definitely exists also in plants that um, you have if you have um, a UORF, so an upstream open reading frame, um, a little bit of genetic information that sits before your actual main information, that this has impact on the translational activity and slows down this translation. And so, what what the authors were mainly arguing here was not like this reduction, which is like known and expected as, as such, but that this then in turn is decreasing these spurts so because you're slowing things down you're ending up with a lower level of protein that comes out but it's also like a more steady level so you don't have these like yeah. huge amounts and then tiny amounts um is this flatten the curve <laughs> i just thinking of it like after this is not flatten the curve <laughs> this is have less noise in the curve this is yeah. like you know report each day so you don't have noises yeah yeah <laughs> okay, it's not flattening the yeah. curve, but it's definitely spreading out the um, the the intensity of the gene expression a little bit, so um, that you get a steadier signal, which can be very important because I think this is one of the next things that they looked at. Then, what could this be? Where could this play a role in mm -hmm. plant cells? Yeah, so they looked specifically at a a gene which makes a protein that is involved in maintaining the daily rhythms of the plants. So there's something called the circadian clock, which is basically this kind of internal gene network mechanism that sort of keeps the plant knowing that there's 24 hours in the day. And this is obviously really important because like the sun comes on and goes out and there's like things that the plant has to do that sort of lines up with how mm -hmm. the earth exists. Um, and this can be sort of stimulated by external cues like light um, and temperature, but it also has this kind of internal thing that it will keep on going and keep on going. Um, so the fact like staying within this 24 hour period is very, very important. If you start going to even like 25 hours, you know, after a couple of days, you're completely out of sync. So mm -hmm. now you're, you're using your clock wrong. And if you read the clock and sort of wake up at midnight and try to photosynthesize, then you'll very quickly die. So yeah. it's really important that the plants stay like have this clock, but also that the clock stays at 24 hours and doesn't become 25, 26, 27 hours because yeah. it basically, yeah, it's, <laughs> damages them yeah and that that's why they re need a really tight regulation of this and i think that going into the details of the clock is a little bit too complicated right now especially for me <laughs> like, mm -hmm. i think you're much more of an expert on the circadian no, no, rhythm no. stuff than i am um but in but the protein they're looking at is called tock one yeah. um tock is nice it's a clock protein so tiktok uh, mm -hmm. um but yeah there's there's clocks that sort of come on at dawn and like you know they they start of day come on and then they they disappear by the end of the day and there's other ones that start the night off so there's sort of these you know fluxes of proteins that say okay now we're here so we're signaling that there's it's like mm -hmm. zero hour and then there's the other ones were like okay now we're coming it's we're signaling like let's say it's 12 hours and that's like the the flux of these sort of balances on a scale keeps the like tick tock mechanism of the clock that it keeps spinning around mm -hmm. And they found out that one integral part of keeping this this clock in sync and keeping it robust to outside um, disturbances is this op uh, upstream open reading frame um, regulation. 
So the, in front of this TOC1 protein or the, the gene encoding for this protein, um, there sits an upstream open reading frame and this one is vital for keeping the clock in sync. And with that, they could show that this mechanism not only exists in plants, but it's also crucial here in, in plants for uh, these like very core processes like the internal the, like the, the internal clock, the circadian rhythm. Yeah, they did an experiment where they were sort of like removing effectively, like changing, but sort of effectively making the upstream off not exist. And then they showed that it it sort of had different um, peaks. So it became like noisier again, which then um, had this effect of, of mm -hmm. changing the the time of the, the clock, the circadian rhythm overall in the plant, which again, not healthy for the plant. Yeah. And I think these were the main findings of the paper. Um, for me, always as a, like, I mean, I'm not really in the lab anymore, but now I wonder if I wanted to put a gene in a plant. And it's maybe one of the, like, more critical genes. Like, we sometimes put genes in plants that um, stress the plant. Mm -hmm. And maybe part of the stress effect could be these surges, could be the noise in the gene expression. And so maybe a clever new way of constructing these, like, transgenes that we put in plants is adding some little upstream information there to to buff like reduce the, the in, uh, initial impact like make it a little bit smoother in the ex gene expression i think this is like sort of these things that are important for people who are like often when we're putting genes into plants we just want it to like get ton like get mm -hmm. big amounts of that gene and then like big amounts of the mri big amounts of the protein that's our our main aim but people are like now putting more and more effort into developing much more complex metabolic pathways where you need like lots of different um, protein products, enzymes um, in different amounts. Mm -hmm. um, or also like, you know, there's this discussion about developing C3 to C4 transition in plants. So basically changing the way certain types of plant do photosynthesis. And this is like really involving a lot of things. And those things not only have to sort of like be there and in the right place but they also do have to be in the right relevant relative amounts so you know having these understandings of how plants are fine-tuning these things can potentially help when we start playing with things and i think mm -hmm. like i mean it still does happen that people put things in plants or algae like any anywhere and they don't get expression or they get more expression than they thought or in like mm -hmm. like there is still so much to be found out with with this and yeah. i think like this has been this gene regulation has has grown a lot as a field in the last years as well. There's all this kind of small RNA, micro RNA stuff. It just yeah. it's cool. I always find it crazy with all of the secondary structures. So when suddenly the mRNA starts to make little wiggly loops and stuff, mm. and they have major effects on the efficiency. Sometimes you can start turning them on and off um, based just on the secondary structures and some metabolite that binds to it, and um, it's really. It's it's really exciting what you find there, but we always see how much more complex it is and how incredibly hard it is to just theoretically trying to understand this so that you can then manipulate it. Um, I it's um, it's hard to wrap the head around. So this is noise reduction by upstream open reading frames by Wu et al. published in Nature Plants in this year, and we're linking that in the show notes. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins.
I'm going to start with the the one that's making the news just this hours and is the most immature one. Um, children block your ears. So this is the best subtitle I've ever had. I really struggle with writing titles when I have to write an article and then, you know, just a blog post and come up with a title. I find this mm-hmm. very hard to have something that's like short and grabs attention and, you know, isn't a lie and is also witty. And very often I just fall back on alliteration. So just using mm-hmm. the same letter first. So the the subtitle here is, People picking penis picture plants poses problems. Um, And basically, there's a a carnivorous plant in Cambodia. Um, Unfortunately for that plant, it happens to look like a certain part of the male anatomy. And people are really um, obsessed. So it's a nepenthes. So it's one of these sort of long tube-like jug plants with a little lid on the top Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, but... It looks not exactly like an Nepenthes and, and more like other things. And because of that, people really like them. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. There are plenty of men in the world, but sure. Um, so now this is in Cambodia and the, the government has basically had to ask people to stop picking them because, you know, humans, whenever we have something nice, we we can't try and destroy <laughs> yeah. it. And I think, like, they've had to put out an official statement now um, because it's starting to jeopardize their survival. And there's also um, – th- they're not making it clear where all of them are as well to mm-hmm. try to protect the poor plants. But, I mean, it's just, like, a silly news article, but of yeah. course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, of 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 course. Uh, last week we had the the moon plants, which I find much more exciting to look for than to find f- like finding endangered penis plants. Mm. Um, I, it's 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 by far not a penis plant, but I have a fun fact that you can use maybe at parties. Um, if somebody brings their coat of arms and they're French, no. you might see that they have a type of plant on their coat of arms, the fleur de lis or a lily. And okay. I wanted, like, I wanted to find like a friend, France-related plant fact, and then I realized, then I remembered that France, like, one of the main symbols for, like, in French culture, is this lily, this fleur de lis. And then I found out that this lily is not actually a lily. This is in fact an iris that's on there, but it's always called a lily or a fleur de lis, and the answer to why it is an iris and not a lily lies also in the name because fleur de lis is often understood as flower of the lily but actually the lee stands for um a river uh the river lee or lis uh, with a y and this is where like the centuries ago the french royal family uh, originated um or like the one that became then like the french french royalty and Along this river, there were irises growing, and they have this particular shape. Like the a lily doesn't actually look like a fleur de lis. Um, a lily looks very different, but these irises, they look, um, they they resemble much more this this symbol. Uh, and they were growing alongside the riverbanks of this river Lee. And so when this royal family decided on a coat of arms, of course, they took something from their their sort of home country. And these were these bright yellow flowers that had this very particular shape. And then they called them the flower of the river Lee, the flower of the Lee, fleur de Lee. And somehow this changed into lily. And now we call these 
symbols lilies, although they're actually irises. Um, and I don't know what to make of that, apart from like annoying people with this. Now, whenever I see a fleur de lis now, I will tell them this. Did you know? Well, actually, I'm this more, is not a lily. <laughs> that seems very nice. I'm, I'm more like interested in, does that mean that like, are lilies also associated with the, like, do we get that common name also from this Lee River? Is that the etymology? No, I don't think so. Um, I think the lilies, they, um, like, they were not growing uh, on this river, the lilies. Um, so I don't know where they got their name from. Um, I just know that the the actual flowers that were growing there were irises and lilies, and irises are actually not that closely related. So it's not even that it's sort of just a sister plant, but they're really quite different. Um, and yeah, I don't know where the, uh, where the name Lily comes from. That would also be interesting. Um, I have a fact, which is something that I stole, I think from one of the nature briefings. Um, but it's based on an article that's in the New Yorker. And it's basically this idea that we have a lot of value in trees, not just because they're awesome in every single way, but also if you look at the, the rings of the trees, Mm -hmm. you can find out not only how old the tree is, but you can also find out a lot about what the climate was at that stage um, because the the width of these rings. So the trees are basically making one ring each year. So if you just sort of count them simply, you could say, okay, this is now a 500-year-old tree. But like the thickness and different properties of the ring will change depending on sort of the temperature and the resources and, and mm-hmm. things like this. So now people are looking to trees to understand what the climate was um, in different areas, you know, hundreds of years ago that the trees still exist. The problem is that, you know, in in lots of cases, those trees don't exist, (laughs) mostly because we cut the trees down (laughs) to make them into furniture. Um, And so this story is kind of about using those old trees that don't exist, but kind of still do exist in their furniture form. Um, (laughs) Not exactly furniture, it's sort of these big... um, timber things like the beams yeah. that are used yeah. to, for construction and because of the size of these beams um, and because they're using trees that are very very old you can actually just go and take the information from them effectively so yeah this is a, an article that I think is worth a read about people who are now going to demolition sites of old buildings to check out their beams and see what information can be got from the the beams that were once trees, which are reflecting the climate that once was. It's it's a, I don't know if it's ironic, but usually we have to cut down the tree to count the rings, and now we have to destroy the house to cut the rings. So <laughs> I mean, you don't have to cut the tree. You can like um, take a small sort of core sample. You don't have. Oh, to, yeah, true. That's yeah. Yeah, That's, I always imagine just like doing a, a clean cut and then looking at a fresh. I mean, cut this tree. is something we have covered on the podcast. There was somebody who saw this super old tree and he's like, oh, this looks really old. Let's cut it down and see, have a look mm-hmm. at the structure and see how old it is. And they cut it down and they found it was like the oldest tree that had ever been discovered to that date by quite a long way. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we made a mistake. Like, whoops. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think there's now less destructive ways of doing that, but I am not yeah. an expert in dendrochronology. And I hope that they're looking in the demolition sites of houses that were 
demolish, uh, demolished not because they wanted to counter trees, but... Um, I think it's um, sort of big buildings. I think it's sort of these, you know, more mm -hmm. warehouse-y That's kind of... I'm imagining these really big beams, but this is... I don't think that's in the article. I think that's just in my head, potentially. <laughs> but I do know this is also a thing that scientists... I think partially because of the pandemic as well, scientists are also going to specimens that we had... Um, in herbariums and museums and using that information to look also you can do sort of newer things to look back in time and see things like what the climate condition were when these these samples yeah. were collected i imagine we, i have an exposed wooden beam in my house um and if i would be like in the business of dating trees i would probably also at, at one point stuck at home look at this and like hmm. i bet this <laughs> this thing has rings I wonder what it can tell me and then from then on start looking into all other beams and, and uh, structural wooden wooden bits to, look, to counter rings on. It's a hobby, Yarm. <laughs> we all need hobbies. Uh, I found a story about um, people taking inspiration from plants because plants have this amazing capability of um, not being the same at all times but instead reacting to environmental cues and This is something that gives them a great advantage. And in this case, it's specifically f uh, about, for example, plants that fold up their leaves um, at night to avoid loss of water through transpiration and then open them up again in during the day to do photosynthesis. And they do this without having any internal like muscles and also without having any... Um, so central nervous system that tells them that like if you would build mm -hmm. a machine that does that you would like put a, a controller somewhere a cpu and then it would then act on a motor and that would open or close something and this approach has disadvantages um because it's much more complex than it needs to be and now researchers have created a microfluidics device so something that can transport very small amounts of liquid and they created it in, in such a way um that it can now mimic the plant's behavior to outside stimuli, in this case, humidity and sunlight um, and temperature, and then it can fold on itself and open up uh, again when the conditions change. So this thing can reversibly uh, yeah, close, it, close itself up when it's raining and open itself up again when the sun is shining. And this is a technical demo, but you can imagine that you build uh, technical structures based on of, of this principle. And you don't need... Um, any electricity for this you don't need any external uh, power or or like technically i guess it takes some power like energy from from the environment but you don't need any computational power or any actuators and it's all sort of integrated in the structure so is the water so it's got fluids it's got liquid inside it so i'm gonna get like water channel somehow yeah is that sort of leaking out when it gets drier so there's sort of transpiration happening effectively i don't know how it really works on a technical level but it changes the like the microfluidics it's essentially little pipes or like canals mm -hmm. in there and i think they change the connections within this pipe system uh based on the structure that it has so when it folds up it directs the water inside in a different way than when it's open um i don't know if it if that leads to leakage but i think it's most like a material property of like very fancy organic chemistry that's happening there um, based on the presence or absence of water. <laughs> it's not that fancy. It's probably just like water in, water out. It's like water comes in, it swells up. Water goes out, it like flattens out, you know? I think it's... Yeah, but the, the material that they use... Um, it's fancy. I think it's fancy. 
Like I think, yeah, the swelling itself is is fairly easy I mean, to understand. But you can also get these kind of things by having different, like not this exact, like not as cool as this, but like you know, have different thicknesses depending, mm-hmm. and then it sort of um, chooses the way something will orient when it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there are these like. They, I think they call like thermal memory uh, materials where they, I think like there's lots of like science um, museums and stuff. You see demos of a, of a bent piece of wire and then you put it in a hot water bath and suddenly it forms a cube oh, and then you cool. let it cool down again and then turns back into a weirdly shaped bent piece of wire. I never and, saw that. That's and that's just, yeah, based on some clever material properties and thicknesses and sort of pre-designed they they call it also this this whole structure they call it um tr- uh, origami inspired structure they call this the trans origami microfluidics tom system um but this origami idea that you have pre-made creases somewhere mm. in the structure that then based on some sort of stimuli uh, stimulus then f- makes it fold in a specific shape this has been around for ma- in material science for a while now um but here they took inspiration from plants to mimic this reactiveness to outside uh, conditions um i was sort of looking around at what's been published recently <laughs> as i sometimes do and i found that there's a review in the journal plant communications that is called unlocking plant metabolic diversity a pangenomic view so do you know what pangenomics is Yoram? looking at more than one genome looking at like all plant genomes in a certain area like in a certain clade or yeah, exactly. It, it, I mean, it's looking at one species, but then multiple different like cultivars or varieties mm. within one species. So like usually, you know, we have when we first had the, the genome for Arabidopsis like this in 2000, you know, you have one species of Arabidopsis, but this is represented by sort of like an individual whose genomes they, they species. And even within Arabidopsis, there's lots of different accessions or like sort of cultivars, mm-hmm. varieties of this. And they have like variations um, and people have now been doing this um, for some years now. Like, it's a fairly new thing. Um, but there's now, I think, maybe 30 plants. It's also written here um, where they've done pan genomes for, although sort of the amount of plants in the pan genome is is quite different for um, different ones. And this is just a review that's looking at how having those pan genomes and then sort of seeing all the diversity can also help understand all the different metabolites that plants make. So one of the really incredible things about plants is that they make metabolites, so little chemical structures, not only for their basic processes, like this is what you need to grow, like these are mm-hmm. these are sugars. This is um, what we usually call the primary, primary metabolism. Right? Yeah, so they make those, um, which makes sense, but then they also make a ton of other small molecules for defending themselves or sending like, I don't know, just like random, so many things. And these are really fascinating to us humans because we, we, we want to use them. We want to yeah. like, not only do they help the plant grow, but like a lot of them become medicines and they're really amazing. So the number here is that there's between 0.2 and 1 million diverse small molecules that like plants can synthesize and this review is just discussing how having these pan genomes, firstly, it helps you see a wider variety of all that's out there. So if you're just looking at one type or cultivar, you might miss some interesting things that are in other cultivars. And this is especially true when we domesticate crops, because often as part of the domestication process, you select really strongly for just kind of one thing. 
which means you you lose many other things often. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the the normal example that's used is tomatoes. Like we made these like red juicy tomatoes, but there are some wild relatives like you know back from the before times, which don't make red juicy tomatoes. They make small, angry green tomatoes, but they're really stress tolerant. They're really good Mm -hmm. at growing in drought. So like in the domestication process, we made them red and juicy, but we somehow lost these these stress genes. So like, and this is a bit different. It's it's like a different species, so it's evolution. But like even in different types of apples, for example, you know, some are crispy and some are sour and some of them are very sweet. Um, And these sorts of properties can be looked at when you have the pan genome but then also if you have these different cultivars and you have these different genomes and then you know oh well that's a particularly sweet or a particularly bitter type of apple you can start to sort of see what unique combinations of genes are mm-hmm. in different varieties which also maps to the unique properties which in turn is actually just their metabolites right so like yeah. the bitterness and the sourness it's coming from metabolites that those plants are making yeah so they're talking about sort of how they do this and part of this is also that there's been this um, discussion of there being sort of gene clusters in plants so this is the idea that if you want to do a function like let's say make a metabolite you can sort of put all of the genes together in the dna so Mm -hmm. you can put the first enzyme that you need to make from a to b and then the second one from b to c and you put them all together and they're all sort of near each other on the genome and that's sort of one metabolic pathway and traditionally speaking we we always knew this happened in bacteria it's really common in bacteria but we sort of had this idea that it's not really happening in like higher organisms like plants but now there are some examples it's still not like the norm it's a bit of an exception still but there are examples where there are these clusters of genes and it's these are kind of gold mines because yeah. you know imagine you sort of find a couple of genes and then you're like oh i wonder what this does and then you find like everything all oh look this one looks like something that might convert this and then oh there's something next to it which looks yeah yeah super cool and exciting and so this is saying like if you have the pan genome and you can link it to these gene clusters you've got really like neat ways of starting to find out how these metabolites are made because yeah, a lot of these metabolites, we can't make them and we don't even know how the plants yeah. are making them. So it's kind of cool stuff. Yeah. This additional information is always what I, I think about when people like in, in pop culture or even in like some, some scientific uh, literature when they say like, we have now one genome sequence and now we can understand it. It's often like not coming from scientists, but from people reading science that's done by scientists. And they say, oh, now we have all of the letters in the code. Now we understand what's, what's going on. And uh, we're so far away from this. And this sort of additional meta information around it is like context information, comparison information is then what really gives us an idea about what's going on. And it's not just that we know, okay, after an A, there comes a C and then there comes a T and two additional A's. Uh, this doesn't tell us really what it, what it's doing. It's only when we start piecing all of this together on top of the genome information that we have that we can actually get some meaningful information out of this. Yeah, so they so in the in the review they say that there's about 30 plant pan genomes that have been created so far and they give some examples where they've sort of been able to use this to link it to the production of metabolites. So one example is that opium poppies, um the poppies that are used to mm-hmm. harvest opium for, there's been already 10 cultivars um from that and they found some differences in the the copy number of of gene, some genes. Um, among these cultivars. So some have just like sort of duplications of, of bits of genes. 
um, and that has all that has an impact on the the production of certain alkaloids, which are mm-hmm. sort of relevant for these opium poppies. Um, they also mentioned there's seven hundred plus accessions of tomato that have been sequenced already, and that has helped them find. 13 different genes that have all been linked to the flavors that we get from tomatoes. So this is like something mm-hmm. quite nice. Um, also for, for rapeseed, Brassica napus, this is the um, canola plants. Again, they've found sort of some things via this method. So yeah, it's it seems quite interesting. And I think like separately, these things are also just quite interesting. All of these amazing metabolites and yeah. pan genomes, now that sequencing is becoming so so cheap sort of yeah. to get yeah. all that information. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I have um, an experiment that on first glance, I don't know, at the very first glance, maybe it's hard, then you think it's easy, and then it's actually hard. Um, Yes. (laughs) So what if I told you, I want to know whether plants can grow on the moon? That sounds like a hard experiment to do, right? You have to bring plants to the moon, and then they probably... Don't really I would like think I would bring the, the moon. moons to the plants. Is that easier? Yeah, that's that's easier. You just bring the moon back to to Earth and yeah. you test it here. Um, that sounds easy enough. You just pick a bucket and bring so it here. Didn't we already do this though? Didn't there was? I mean, the Chinese put these plants on the far side of the moon. Yeah, we've discussed this many times. We discussed this last episode. Yeah, but there they were contained in their own growth medium, in their own little growth box. So there they brought the earth to the moon and grew them. Now they want to know whether they can grow the plants directly in the soil of the moon. I'm I'm going to guess no. Uh, I guess it's not possible or no, they they can't do it. I mean, they, they could do it. I can tell you that already. They they could do it. But the complication was that um, you don't really... They didn't bring back like big troughs of moon soil that you could put in like a nice raised planter in your garden. They had 12 grams of soil from the moon. And this is um, from actually three missions from the Apollo 11, Apollo 12, and Apollo 17 missions. So combined pooled they have 12 grams of soil and this is incredibly valuable soil because all kinds of analyses that you want to do you have to do on these 12 grams and so there were plant researchers that really really wanted to grow some plants in it and they actually had to apply over the course of 11 years to get a chance to work with this and then they filled um, tiny multi-well plates with about one gram um, of soil per per pot and then they put arabidopsis seeds in there and then they grew them and they had some like controlled seeds we have artificial moon soil so something where based on the analysis that we have of the moon soil we reconstituted before yeah um and so they had that that as a control but they realized um that in the actual moon soil they were able to germinate these arabidopsis seeds so that is good but they were growing much um, much poorer than in the controlled soil, so in the artificial moon soil, which tells us that like there is some combination of um, of, of like toxic chemicals or metals or ions in the moon soil uh, that especially when the moon soil gets wet, which it usually doesn't do on the moon, um, it releases that and the plants suffer from that. So based on that, um, we know that we can't just bring potato plants to the moon, stick them in the moon soil and then have potatoes. Um, we probably need to do more than that. But what is really interesting is, um, and it sort of links back to your story, is that they 
took very extensive gene expression data from these Arabidopsis plants growing there, trying to understand which gene clusters were activated, which stress responses was going on to figure out what in what in the soil makes these moon plants uh, makes these plants stressed um, when they're growing on the moon soil. And yeah, so they're in in, in the analysis phase, analysis phase of that, but they saw like like um, lots of like more generalist stress responses happening there. Now you know what I want to ask next, right? Uh, no. Did they try pooping and adding the poop to the soil? Because <laughs> I saw a movie about this, and in the movie he added the poop to the soil and then he grew the potatoes. They added fertilizer to it. They added um, nutrient solution to them, so they didn't just have Was to plant. Was it hum- human made? I don't handmade think, <laughs> i don't think it was i um i think that it's maybe the next step but i think if they would write that in the project proposal they might not get to 12 we grams of moon soil please give us 12 <laughs> grams of moon soil so we can poop in it yeah cool. i think that might be the end of the experiment <laughs> all right i think i mean i have one other fact today and it's just a sad thing it's making the news right now it's the fact that um in Ukraine now, from the war, the National Gene Bank of Plants has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. So this is pretty important. Um, they've lost, they had 160,000 varieties of plant seeds in there, um, including sort of hybrids of important crops um, and stuff that was sort of valuable and specialist to the area, yeah. um, including some samples that like are probably not anywhere else Um which is especially a shame given the important role for agriculture that Ukraine has or had um, that, yeah, we will only have to see what effects that will have in the future. Like if we will be able to source this genetic information from elsewhere and these seeds or if, if this truly is lost forever, which would be horrible. Uh, maybe time for a cat fact. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Let's, let's do that. Cat fact. So we know that cats can remember their own name because often enough, not always, often enough, when we call them by their name, they react to their name. So that's, this is not something new. But now um, there's research done and like fittingly, Tegan picks up a very large and heavy cat for, for this segment. Um, and so I have two cats. And according to science done in, in Japan, uh, in Japan, they, uh, my two cats also know the name of the other cat. They not only know their own name. Um, they did some. They did an experiment where they shown cats <laughs> images of other cats on a screen, cats that they live with, and sometimes they would hear um, over the loudspeaker their owner say the name of the other cat, and sometimes they would say a different name that's not the name of the other cat that they're seeing at the same mo- at, the, at the moment. And when there was a mismatch of name and picture, the cats would sort of be confused and look for a longer time, significantly longer time at the image, trying to figure out why is the face not matching the name that they're hearing. And uh, from that, they deduct that the cats are able to link the name of another being, a cat, and they also tested that with humans, to the picture of them. <laughs> he tested that if humans could link the name of another human. <laughs> I'm very bad at facial recognition, but I think I would pass the test, even so. <laughs> yeah, and also they also tested on cats that re- would recognize humans that they live with. Okay. And then they would realize if the name 
uh, was not fitting the image, then they would be irritated and and sort of stumble <laughs> and and look for a little bit longer on. This there. feels very subjective. I'm like measuring whether the cat looks irritated. Seems <laughs> was there also something that was sort of more objectively measurable? So not just like how long it looks confused, but you know it then gets up and walks away or something um, that you can actually time. No, this is really a big problem with this study. It has a, <laughs> a small amount of cats that were actually used in the study. <laughs> a small amount of cats and a lot of variability. Yeah, um, I mean they they had some interesting ideas. They went to cat cafes to mm-hmm. test like cats that live in controlled populations but larger populations of cats to sort of figure out um if that only works when you have like two or three or four cats together or if that also works if you have 15 or 20 cats together and apparently the more cats you have the less likely it is to work so it's sort of intuitively uh, understandable that when you have 20 other names and cat faces around you, it's much harder to keep track than if you're living in a small space with just another cat. Sure, sure. Um, but it's true that just the the reten- like the time they look at the picture is not the best indicator to really understand whether they know this name. But there, 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 is, there is a reaction by them that we can observe. But now we need more research. But they say research, doing research on, on cats cats is hard. <laughs> um, the researchers themselves note that uh, one cat completed only the first trial before escaping from the room and climbing out of reach. And <laughs> that makes it much harder to, to study cats. Um, but maybe they understand much more. And they say here um, they um, the cats are sort of eavesdropping on us and, and like listening to our conversations and then piercing together some bits of this information, just like a name coming up to, uh, in relation to a person. Um, I mean, I, I, I very much enjoy this type of research always, but it's also a bit of a moot point as well, because like, even if the cat doesn't understand, it doesn't mean you're going to get anything out of it. Like from, from a human point of view, we're interested, like, can the cat understand its name? So now what? We know that the cats can, and it just makes them more <laughs> because they, they understand more than we thought, but they've just chosen... <laughs> How is this a win for humankind to know this? Isn't it just better to be ignorant? <laughs> I I wonder where evolutionary this this comes from. Like, do cats have names on their own? Because but they can just hear sound differences. I mean, they have very good hearing, right? It just sounds different, right? Yeah, but the ability to link faces and sounds together. I mean, maybe they can recognize other cats in the wild by like their cries, and then they can link that together, and then it sort of as a was replaced by then humans speaking the name of a cat and they used the same brain networks. I mean, if they're hunting, they could recognize the sound a bird makes and then use like mm-hmm. that sound and visually connect it to look. Like imagine you've got a forest and you've got to find a bird. Like, so you've got to like f- imagine what the bird, I mean, I don't think it's imagining, but I guess it's some sort of instinctual thing of yeah, predators for prey searching. I, I, try, I, I, I like to imagine that cats have their own name system. <laughs> no i think that's that will be the next study when cats do recognize the name is it because they consider you to be prey <laughs> yeah. and the answer is yes we're always Almost prey definitely, yes. <laughs> they're just waiting for a chance to pounce and that's it that's the end of the show if you want to reach out to us you can find us on twitter um, I'm at Twitter. <laughs> on, on Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. Well done. On Instagram <laughs> and occasionally on Facebook, it's at Plants and Pipettes. And we also have a website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And there you find um, blog posts that we've written in the past and also all of the show notes of the and links uh, of the stuff that we've talked about in this show. So if you want to read up on anything, you can find more on the website. 
As always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.